once you've marked hymn number 32 as a hymn of encouragement or hymn of invitation, I would ask you to think with me about just a word or two of that middle song that we sang a moment ago. So appropriate, in fact, it was. Faith is the victory. As our young ones are studying for the Bible Bowl, they'll encounter that text and passage in 1 John 5, that indeed faith is that victory that overcomes the world because he that's in us is greater than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. What a blessedness it is then to think about an opportunity like we have this morning on this Lord's Day to come together in appreciation and respectful worship of the great and masterous name that is He is. As we've gathered on this occasion, we will continue our series of studies this morning in the book of James. As we are studying along with our youngsters, our young boys and girls, as they prepare for the Bible Bowl, they are in fact studying in James through the book of Jude, and we have decided to do the same. Last Lord's Day, we learned a bit about the book of James as it related to the wisdom from above. Today, we will extend that study by looking yet again at the book of James. And might I ask that you review with me somewhat briefly, not only some of those lessons from last week, but as an introduction to some of those that we'll consider this morning. The beautiful character of the book of James. That wisdom from above is so highly contrasted to the wisdom from, from beneath. For this wisdom upon earth brings confusion. It brings things that are devilish and demonic, things that are sensual and unspiritual. But that wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. It's without hypocrisy. It's full of mercy and good fruits. And it is without partiality. To say all that is to say that we are so desirous if we would be wise to pursue those things revealed by God. And in fact, as we study this morning, many other things James had to say to challenge us, to lead us to respect the fact that even as was read a moment ago, we must be doers of the Word. In fact, is it, is it not true that James expressly said in verse 22 of James 1, we must be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Isn't it an amazing thought and an amazing fact that so many, perhaps, that you and I may know are interested in accumulating a body of knowledge so that they know something. But where do they apply it? In what sense does one do or apply or appreciate the application of that which has been learned? It has well been noted that the book of James, though five chapters it is, sets before you and me, perhaps as much as any other New Testament book, the absolute necessity of doing that which we know. Sometimes we pray for God's forgiveness when we fail to do those good things we know to do. Brother Ted, in fact, made mention of that a moment ago in his prayer. Isn't that appropriate? Even the man David made note of the fact of presumptuous sin in Psalm 19. May you and I ever be aware of the need to apply that which we know, and we'll study that today in some fullness, in some great character. That being said, would you look with me again at the wording of verses 22 to 25 in James chapter 1, and let us be reminded of the necessity of doing what God has said. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. 
But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Who is it that's blessed according to the revelation of the Holy Spirit through James? The one who not only knows the perfect law of liberty but continues therein doing that which he has learned in that law. 27 New Testament books encourage us to be a doer of that beautiful law of liberty which we are aware that's taught by truth. Today, if we focus only on the book of James, what would be five perhaps brief lessons that we can learn that we should apply so that we can be doers of the word and thus those that would be more pleasing in the sight of heaven? May I suggest the first one? would come from a recognition of what occurs in chapter 2 of this noble and grand book. I have entitled it very especially with a capitalized conjunction linking two very special words, faith and works. You and I are aware that especially from the time of John Calvin onward, there has been a raging debate between faith on the one hand and works on the other, to the point that there are many in our world who seemingly are very perplexed and confused by how is one justified? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? And in fact, to highlight the trouble, there are some who will especially quote or make note of Romans 3.28, which there very especially says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And thus, Paul very clearly seems to say that we're justified by faith and works have nothing to do with it. But when we come to James 2, verse 24, James makes the following observation. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. John Calvin at one point, and in fact he wasn't the only one, but made observation that those verses, at least to him, appeared to contradict. For that reason, he had very little interest in the book of James. He, in fact, in the margin of his Bible, we're told, made a comment to the effect that this book is not worthy of being studied. Might I make note for each of us this morning, is there any contradiction between James on the one hand and Paul in the other in the Roman letter? There is no contradiction. The New Testament teaches very resoundingly that indeed we are justified by faith. That's the cardinal teaching of the text of Romans 5, isn't it? Justified by faith. That is not the subject of James's discussion before us. In fact, he highlighted it in the very chapter in which we read earlier. Let's notice again one of the words, and it's the last word in James 2.24. You see then that how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. James' issue is bringing up the subject of faith only as it would contrast to works. There is no contradiction between the biblical teaching of faith on the one hand and the necessity of works on the other. Beginning in verse 17 of James 2, we read very clearly the following teaching. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Faith by itself is the issue that James presents to us. We realize that, in fact, the characteristic of faith as it's presented here, and as I remind us on the screen, is such that there's no contradiction between these two biblical writers. 
May we not so forcefully say, and James did it for us, that faith without works is dead. Works without faith is useless, foolishness. Who would engage in the necessary acts of a lifetime that would be pleasing to God if he was not prompted and motivated by the governing faith taught in the Scriptures? One without the other is not an ideal situation by far. But when they are compacted together in unison, faith and works, we learn some of the following ideas. I presented them for your thinking near the bottom of that screen. Would you note with me some of the things revealed to us in this book of James? We are expressly taught that by works a man is justified. By works, that is, that that's the means by which faith is demonstrated. The means by which faith is illustrated or shown or perfected, to use the actual Greek word. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. In what way, then, is that faith so illustrated before others? By those works in which that person engages. By those activities, that lifestyle in which he lives. Is it not then fair to say that faith alone does not save? In fact, let's let James teach us that point. In verse 19 of James chapter 2, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Even the devils believe and tremble. You see, James makes note for us the fact that there are demons that are well aware of the fact there's one God, well aware of the fact that Christ Jesus is His only begotten Son. In fact, while upon earth, how many times did those demons, in fact, confess such? They knew exactly who he was. In Matthew chapter 8, on one occasion, this was that scene in which the Lord cast those demons out and they entered a herd of swine. They ran over a hillside and drowned. Before that event took place, before they ran over the hillside, they said, Art thou come to torment us before the time? They knew very well who he was. Here we have an interesting question then, do we not? Here are demons, devils who believe. Are they saved? Will they be saved eternally? Obviously not. For they, in fact, we are told in 2 Peter 2, are reserved in everlasting change of, change of judgment awaiting the last day. Belief alone, a mental acknowledgement alone, is not susceptible to salvation. One must accompany that faith by a life of works dedicated to the cause of the truth revealed in the Bible. But isn't it fascinating to note that even some examples of the Scriptures highlight this very same conclusion for us? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, On that occasion a centurion came to Jesus and beseeched him to heal his servant. On that occasion, Jesus, by making note of the great faith that this centurion possessed, said, I have not found so great faith in Israel. What was the Lord's point? His point was this, that there were many who were of the Jewish nationality and persuasion. They had never made such a statement of faith to him as that centurion did. Jesus said, I haven't found so great faith amongst Israel. Jesus thus made note that by the actions of this centurion's life, the fact that he, in fact, admitted and confessed to Jesus, the fact you can heal him even without coming to my abode, 
that testified of his faith and how great it was. Or what about the scene in Mark seven or Matthew seventeen, verse twenty? There Jesus taught that if one possessed the faith even of a grain of mustard seed, you could say unto this mountain, Arise and be thou cast into the sea, and it would be done. A testimony that faith accompanies works. Or perhaps most notably, that scene in Mark two, beginning in verse one. Here were four friends who had a paralyzed friend. They were so insistent and so faithful to bring that man to Jesus. They hauled him to a roof, removed a portion of the roof tiling thereof, and lowered him through the roof. In Mark 2 verse 5 it says, When Jesus saw their faith. What did Jesus see? He saw their faith. How did he see it? Their faith was illustrated in the works they had done to haul that man to a roof and engage in the labor of lowering him into that room where Jesus was. Your faith and mine then must be illustrated and demonstrated by works or else it's a dead faith. It's a faith that's vain and useless and a faith that will not redound into everlasting life. And thus, the first thing about being a doer of the Word is that our faith must illustrate itself in works. But what about a second point, a second idea that's worthy of our consideration? Chapter 3 sets before us the following set of ideas. And to bring us to that point, let us note one little verb, one little verse, I should say, in verse 26 of James chapter 1. It has to do with the tongue, with our language, our speech. If any man among you seem to be religious... And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. It is an amazing thought that amongst the capabilities given to the human family is oral communication. You and I have in our vocabulary thousands and thousands of words that we can use to compose sentences and express thoughts. We can communicate one with another. Language is an amazing gift. It is, in fact, a powerful responsibility as well. One of the things we must never then forget when it comes to language and speech is that if we are religious, really, we must bridle our tongue. That's what James just said. That person who seems to be religious but doesn't bridle his tongue deceives his own heart, and James said his religion is useless. It's vain. It's empty. You and I must then be well aware that not just on Sunday, but all other times, our speech must be closely controlled and guarded, and our language should then exemplify the faith that's in our heart. Let us look at chapter 3 and notice how James elaborates on that point. How does one bridle his tongue? What does that involve? In chapter number 3, we have, in fact, several verses, beginning in verse 1 onward, Rather than read all of that, let us highlight some of the sections of it. What is involved in the bridling of the tongue? First, may we set before our mind the following realization. The tongue is a little element in our body. The tongue is not very big. It's certainly not nearly as large as many other parts of the body. But though it is small, how great a thing it can be. James highlights that by making two comparisons. First, how is a horse made to obey? 
bits are placed in its mouth, and thus by the controller making use of those bits, that horse is made to obey. Or on the other hand, in what way does a governor or pilot direct a massive large ship? James makes note of the fact that though that rudder is small, nonetheless by employing it, the captain, the pilot, is able to direct the ship whithersoever his will would take it. And his point is this, in just that same way the tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. How often have you and I made note that perhaps by a word we have hurt somebody else? By a careless expression or careless sentence, we have harmed a relationship, and oh, how regretful we may thereafter be for what we said. But on the other hand, by a properly stated compliment, an aptly stated nice gesture, we were able to strengthen someone's faith and encourage them in a way that otherwise would not have been accomplished. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver, to quote Proverbs 25.11. You see, the tongue may be a little member, but it boasts great things. So great that James describes it in the following ways. It is such that it can cause great good or great bad. And guess what? The choice as to which way it falls it rests with you and me. We may with proper choice and wisdom employ our tongue in ways that are of great good, but if we are careless and follow the wisdom of the world and do not bridle our tongue, we can just as easily employ our speech and our tongue in ways that are damaging and hurtful and in fact so destructive. Behold, what a great forest a little fire kindleth. Isn't that the analogy that James uses? I've listed some of the words that he employs, and these are... In fact, amazing in their usage. He expressly notes in verses 5 and following, the tongue is a fire. It's an unruly evil. It's full of unrighteousness. It is a deadly poison. Obviously making reference to the bad side when that tongue is employed in that way. Maybe you and I have noticed that in conversation in language, so often, perhaps on many occasions, that language that is employed in such an evil way, can impact so many for evil. But that language, that tongue, when employed for good, can be just as powerful in the opposite way. James even makes this comment in verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. Isn't it amazing that in our maturity... And we are admonished to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. In that growth, we strive to control and bridle the tongue. But I suspect that even all of us, in the moments of even maturity, we will lapse occasionally and regret that we said something, or maybe regret that we didn't say something. For in fact, that may be one of the greatest harms that we as Christians are afflicted with. We have at our disposal a tongue knowledgeable of the greatness of the gospel of Christ. And all too often we fail to wield that sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6.17, when we have opportunity to share the blessed news of Christ and to reach those about us in ways that are so amazing using this mighty little weapon, the tongue itself. The usage of the tongue is expressed also in other ways. Note the inconsistency of that is shown in verse 10. 
Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. That person who has a mind desirous of the service of God and who perhaps on Sunday or Wednesday praises God with that tongue, but then on Monday or Thursday or Saturday, out of that same mouth comes words of vulgarity and cursing and other things like that. These things ought not so to be. James makes mention here then of the inconsistency that men may present in their language, and that ought not happen. Those of us dedicated to the cause of Christ should thus strive daily and pray for God's wisdom that we would mature and employ our tongue in ways of righteousness and nobility, in ways of goodness and appropriateness. Think how often the Bible condemns certain usages of the tongue. I've listed a few verses for your consideration. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29 And thus all corrupt communication should be no part of the life of the person of God. In fact, five verse, four verses earlier, Ephesians 4.25, that would include lying and deception. In Exodus 20, verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Thus the employment of God's name in an unholy way, that ought never happen. That was true of the Old Testament. It remains true in the New. Or what about the employment of other references to holy matters? We are expressly taught in Ezekiel 22:26, we must make distinction between the holy and the common. We thus, like Peter, in the text of Jude verse 9, should be very cautious of using holy things in unholy ways. And that includes our language. How often is the name of Jesus taken and used by people in our society in ways without any knowledge of the greatness of the Son of God? Or what about the name of heaven, or even the name of hell, or even the name of other holy or sanctified matters? Our speech ought to be that which, as James describes it, consistent. We should then, as the old restoration plea was, to use Bible things in Bible ways. May we not then learn the great lesson and the powerful thought of the need for bridling the tongue. As this second lesson is presented to us, may we understand perhaps finally that Jesus made a statement that forever reminds us that our words will be a part of the judgment. In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, he made this observation, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned." Even the idle words we've spoken will be brought up and made mention of on that great day of judgment. And oh, thus, how serious it is for us to use our language wisely, appropriately, to bridle that tongue when it needs to be bridled, but to use it powerfully when we need to speak the things of God. That's only two lessons. What about a third one to be found as we do the work of the Lord, to do the Word? This third lesson is found in the opening part of chapter 2. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we learn a grand lesson about the sin of partiality. 
And that will be our third lesson for the, for the time of our study this morning. By partiality, what is it that we mean? We mean favoritism. We mean that disposition of prejudicially selecting one over another or one class over another. In James chapter 1, some of those to whom James wrote were exhibiting their Christianity or their faith toward God with partiality. And this is the way it's presented. Verse number 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not partial in yourselves, and become judges of evil thoughts? James makes the observation that in that day it was possible, and some were engaged in it, of showing favoritism to those that were rich. They were given prestige, and even in the worship, they were given priority and greater respect. Whereas that man that was dressed in ways that were not as good as the rich, he was made to sit in the back. He was made to sit elsewhere in a low place. James rather quickly notes, you are to be condemned for this. Note the language of verse number 9. But if ye have respective persons, ye commit sin. They were guilty of sin in that for no reason other than the distinction between rich and poor, they elevated the rich, where at the same time they despised the poor. That was not to be then, nor is it now. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Riches, education, the character of one's house or car, those are immaterial in our recognition of the need of salvation at the foot of the cross of Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter whether one is rich or poor physically, each needs the blood of Christ. Doesn't matter whether one is educated or not in the ways of the world, each needs the blood of Christ. James says, you in your activities in this way of partiality are guilty of sin. You are to be condemned for that. You need to repent of that. As such today, might we remember the error that goes along with partiality. As we return and think about one episode in the life of Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, as he there made discussion in verses 19 and following about the nature of his disposition toward others, he said, as he summarized, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. To those under the law, I became as under the law, he would say. To those without law, I became as without law. To those, in fact, of any character, I would be as much as possible by the cross, like them, that by them I might gain their consideration and their confidence. What about you and me today? Paul thus showed no partiality. There are those whom you and I may have known who seem to have a feeling of partiality. Are all those around the world worthy of the gospel? Those in Russia, China, Malaysia, India. Would it be of proper consideration for us and love for them to send the gospel there? Or are they not worthy of it? Maybe you and I have heard comments to that effect. And such is partiality and such ought not be. All men everywhere are in need of the gospel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Our Savior's words in Mark 16, 16. To think then that we might be partial, and some perhaps that have made expressions that we've heard, such is a terrible thing. For our Savior died for all men. Our gospel is a universal one. The church is meant for all to have knowledge and to enter it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? No wonder in 1 Timothy 5, 21, Paul then told Timothy, do nothing by partiality. Nothing by partiality. Thus, as we consider this third lesson, might we remember the greatness then that is stated in the very last two verses of this book. In James 5, verses 19 and 20, James made one final touching remark. And note how that there's no partiality in this remark. He said, If any of you do err from the truth, and one restore him, let him know that he which restoreth the erring brother shall hide a multitude of sins, and shall save a soul from death. You see, where our, whether our brother be black, white, yellow, brown, it makes no difference. If we are able to aid him in coming to know the gospel and to be faithful thereto, what a joyous and grand eternal blessing it is. But in the fourth case, in addition to these three things about doing the Word, might we also note this one that's found in chapter 5, the first few verses. It has to do with riches. We discussed in our Bible class this morning about the riches associated with both Lot and Abram, his uncle, and how that each one had been blessed greatly by the God of heaven. But we might note that James had something to say about riches as well. Beginning in verse 1, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries, that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. In this place, riches were not spoken of in terribly great measure, in the sense of great blessing. Why might that be? The verses that follow explain completely. Those to whom James referred were such that their blessings had been obtained in ways that were not appropriate. Let's observe that when blessings are right, they're a marvelous gift from God as we're taught in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 13. But in this case, these riches that had been obtained were obtained in some of the ways that I've listed there at the bottom of this sheet. They had been obtained by taking advantage of others. They'd been obtained by trampling over the thoughts and persons of other individuals. They had been obtained by, in fact, theft or stealing or taking advantage of the correct and true nature of somebody else. In fact, in verse number 3, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them that shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together the last days. They had withholden wages from those to whom they were rightly deserved. They had in fact in other ways taken advantage of those whose riches these rightly were. May we thus learn, according to those things at the bottom, that riches themselves, there's nothing wrong with those when they're appropriated rightly, used correctly, and made use of with respect that they are not God. They are merely instruments or tools that God has blessed us with. You cannot serve two gods, two masters, if you will, 
Jesus made that statement in Matthew 6.24, and the word mammon that's used there has reference to riches, to money. We can't serve that money as a God and serve the true God at the same time. In fact, God is a jealous God. But doesn't that remind us of that text in 1 Timothy 6.10? Isn't it a true statement that there Paul reminded Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The verse just preceding, verse 9, made note that they would be rich, fall into many temptations and evil destructions. Thus, as we are blessed with finances and possessions and monies, may we always remember that God has given them to us. And may we use them to His glory. May we use them for His good and His honor and to glorify Him. When we make those riches our God, we have taken the place then or put them in the place of God in our life. And we shall ultimately and eternally pay a sore price for that if we repent not. Here James reminds these. In verse number 6, Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Let us then, as we close that point in our lesson, notice how serious it is then to note that it's possible for riches to be corrupt when we obtain them in ways that aren't good and when we fail to use them in ways that are good. But then finally, in addition to the corruptness of riches, ill-begotten, may we close our lesson with point number five and notice one other thing that is so very pertinent in the book of James. James has often been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. So many practical daily teachings delivered to us. And oh, how we would be remiss not to make note of the one that closes verse chapter number 4, the brevity of life. Isn't it true that sometimes we tend to think we can live here forever when we feel healthy and we feel good and perhaps we have a large number of blessings about us? At that time and all others... We should always remember that life here, even at its lengthiest, is brief. What is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. Our life here is perhaps 70, 80, 90, 100 years, but then it's over. In the flesh, that is. James's point is, with regard to our existence, we should remember that our life in the flesh is but a blip on the map of eternity. All the rest of that life is lived in spirit form, either in a hell or in a heaven. Now, what would the wisdom from above ask us to remember? Should we focus in all of our efforts on the fact of life in this flesh and go about our daily business and give no thought to God? Or is the wiser course of action to ask if the Lord will, we will do this or that and go into a city and buy and sell and get gain? And the answer to that is self-evident, isn't it? The correct answer is, of course, to recognize that even in the flesh, God ought to be the director, guiding our life in the ways that are appropriate and in ways of salvation, recognizing that then when our life here is over, continuing in spirit form in Hades, and then finally, after the judgment in hell or heaven, their understanding that that eternity will be having been guided and made preparation for, we will enjoy all the goodness of heaven forevermore. That is, of course, what wisdom involves. It's no wonder that the Bible often reminds us of the need to remember that our days are brief. 
It's compared to a handbreadth in Psalm 39.5. Job would say it's like a shadow in Job 14.1. Job would also say it's as swift as a weaver's shuttle. If you've ever seen a lady undergoing or taking part in using a loom or something like that, that shuttle moves so quickly, Job said that's how life is. May we live wisely, preparing our thought and mind day by day so that when our days here are done, we can leave this earth as Paul did, confident of the fact that we're prepared to meet our Maker, prepared to obtain a crown of righteousness not only available to Him, but available to all those that love His appearing. And with that observation made, that draws us to the conclusion of our lesson this morning. The thoughts then that we have noted today have involved an application of the wisdom we learned last Lord's Day, doing of the Word. May you and I then not be hearers only, but doers. And that means that we need to remember that faith and works go together. We should also remember that there should be no partiality in our life. We should bridle our tongue. We should appreciate the correctness of riches rightly gotten. And finally, the last point noted, that life is brief. And oh, how we need patience and long-suffering to be that kind of person God would have us to be. Today, then, that leads us to ask, are you a Christian? Have you begun then to hold on to the hand of Christ and to walk down the golden street of glory through this life leading to eternity in heaven? If you haven't yet clasped His hand in obedience, today needs to be the day. You need to render faithful obedience to those initial commandments of the gospel. Believe in Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life that have separated you from Him. Confess His glorious name as the only begotten Son of God. And finally, be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Once those sins are forgiven, you then be a member of the church added thereto by Christ Himself. In that church, you can then do the work commanded in the Bible. Not just hear them, but do them and glorify God as you do. If, though, you have not lived faithfully with Him, as we study last Lord's Day evening, if you've left your first love like the church in Ephesus did, come back to it. They were urged to repent and do the first works. That's what you need to do as well. But you need to let others, if those sins have been public, know of your intent to repent and to change. We'd be happy to pray for that to occur. If either of those things is the need of your life this morning, will you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?